Romans chapter 4. We'll be in verses 13 to 17 this morning. The title of the message is Confirming the Promises. <laughs> the context of where we have been in Romans, uh, that, that first chapter talks about the gospel, and then all the way from there to uh, verse 20 of chapter 3, uh, the apostle uh, just pounds in us the need of the gospel. Um, and uh, basically, he talks about the righteous judgment of God, that God is righteous and just and holy as he judges people. Um, now, sometimes people say, I don't really want to hear that. Uh, went to church and it was all fire and brimstone. Um, I don't really want to hear that. I don't care what you want to hear. I don't answer to you. I do to the session, but I answer to the Lord God. And he presents his gospel this way. And it's beautiful that he presents it this way. He doesn't come and say, oh, I don't care who you are, what you've done. I just, I just love you. Let's go get some ice cream. Right? No, he doesn't. He comes and says, my wrath is righteously going to be poured out upon you. And here is why. You have turned your back on me. You have broken my law. You have not sought me out. And when you know my law, you do the opposite. My wrath righteously is to be poured out on you. Here's interesting. You've been following the Asbury Awakening. The sermon could have been done in a PCA church. The sermon that called students to repentance and to put their faith in Christ Jesus and him alone for their salvation, to turn from their wicked ways, their immorality towards their Savior. And that's what he does in Romans. So the, the, up through 3.20, it is basically saying, none of y'all have an excuse before God. Whatever excuse you have, none of you have an excuse. And then we get to, so 3.20, here, here's how it summarizes it. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's it. The works of the law, uh, that was the last group. We've tried, we've obeyed, we've done this. No. And then he answers their objections. But, but the, beauty, the beautiful part is, is 21. Everyone was out hope, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So this section, we're going to close it in a couple weeks. This section really is explaining that. How then are we made right before a holy God? And it's interesting that as he explains that, just that beautiful 321, a beautiful promise, the righteousness of God, it, it, it's being manifest to us. We are going to receive it by faith because God is gracious. We will receive it. People make objections to it. What about my obedience? What about my race? What about my church attendance? So um, three weeks ago, we, we talked about the good deeds that Abraham and David did. And the apostles like, no, that wasn't enough. Two weeks ago, what about the sacraments? What about circumcision? What about baptism? That's not enough. And this week, we're going to look at what about God's promises? God made these promises. Abraham received these promises. Did Abraham not uh, receive these promises? because he was obedient, because of his good works, because he followed the law. So you can see that's kind of how the argument is going, each type of person that puts up a roadblock against the gospel. And I want to just tell you before we read this, it is in our nature 
to hate the gospel. Here's why we hate the gospel. We have not dealt with each other in that manner. We've not dealt with each other in that manner. We, we, you know, people say, hey, Mark, you're loving and gracious. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm calculating. I'm self-righteous. And I have to ask the Lord Jesus for grace to love people. Because I want to love people as they are worthy. I want to love people as they help me. As they help my agenda. As they make me look good. As they make my life easy. That is in my nature. Is in our nature to love people as long as they perform. As long as you don't break these rules, I will love you. I will stay faithful to you uh, as long as you don't do this. That's how we, that's how we relate to each other. And so we, we, we find it super hard to believe that God is any different. Super hard to believe. And I think the other reason we don't like it is because I, I don't want to need it. I don't want, at the end of the day, Tammy to say, Mark, I don't really like you or really anything you've done this week. Uh, you're repulsive to me. You smell bad. You haven't done. But I love you because I made that commitment. Right? We, we don't want that. We don't want to go before the Lord God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We don't want to do it. And so we throw up whatever thing we have done. We compare ourselves to other people. Uh, we throw it all up in God's face or amongst each other. At least I haven't done this. Um, and so the, the objection that, that the apostle here is going to answer really is uh, Abraham was faithful. He followed God's word. He obeyed God. And that's why we're saved because God made a promise to Abraham and to his offspring. We are Abraham's offspring. Therefore, we stand in this promise and, and we're not going to face the judgment of God and that's what makes us right with God. So uh, that's where we are in chapter 4, verse 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. <coughs> for the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I wish that I would have emailed you on Monday and said, oh, if you have time, read Genesis 12 to 17. Um, because what, what the apostle is pointing out is this covenant that God made with Abraham. Uh, and, and covenant theology is how Reformed Presbyterians and other Reformed denominations, it's how we look at the Bible. 
We look at the Bible as God makes a covenant. God makes an agreement. Um, Jake's studying for his licensure and ordination, uh, and he's going to have all kinds of questions on the covenant. What is the covenant? Does God make a covenant? Did the covenant of works fail? Um, God makes these promises, and and the, the simple definition of a covenant is a bond in blood that is sovereignly administered. And so in Genesis 12 to 17, we have this beautiful picture of God making a covenant with Abraham. It first comes in chapter 12, where God unilaterally says, Hey, Abraham, I'm calling you away from your family and from your people and from all those idol worshipers. He doesn't say, Abraham, I've looked all over the earth, and you alone are worshiping me. Abraham, you are the one. Same thing uh, with Noah, right? Noah, it doesn't say... Uh, Noah was a good and righteous man. It says, Noah found grace. It's a beautiful Hebrew word, chesed. you got to get it in your throat, chesed. It's just this beautiful, powerful, Noah found grace, and he was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man because the grace of God was poured out upon him. Abraham was chosen by God because God is gracious. And so you read about that in chapter 12, 1 to 3. Um, God gives this covenant. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. And um, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but, but this text almost kind of requires that you have a sense of the way God deals with human beings. And so it's important if you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, that you understand that God's dealing with human beings has been the same from Genesis chapter 3, and it will be for eternity. He will deal graciously and covenantally with his people. If he makes a promise, he will keep it. And the beautiful picture we have in Genesis 17, um, sorry, Genesis 15, is this promise that Abraham has, and it hasn't come about yet. We'll talk about that in in a minute. Before we get to that, we have this story in Exodus 20, The law is given. God gives his law because this text is also going to talk about the law. Uh, When we talk about the law, especially in in Romans, we are talking about God's law. The Ten Commandments and and all of the associated commandments through Deuteronomy and through Leviticus, all of the commandments of God. That is the law. Well, the law really was given verbally and on tablets of stone in Exodus 20. Probably anywhere from 400 to 700 years after Abraham. Right? So it's important to remember that time. About 400 to 700 years after the law, the tablets of stone, God speaking on the mountain, came way after Abraham. Uh, but the beautiful thing about the law, Exodus 20, right? We know that's the Ten Commandments. We might be able to memorize the Ten Commandments and repeat them. Uh, he, he, got, he starts it, and it's, it's covenantal. I am the Lord your God. Here is who I am. There's a whole uh, process. There's a, there's a way of doing covenants called suzerian. Su- I'm sorry, suzerain. Sounds like a birth. Suzerian covenant. <laughs> Bond and blood. Okay, sorry. <laughs> suzerain covenant. Uh, I am, I'm the God who brought you out. By my strong and powerful hand. This is who I am. This is who you are to be. But what's amazing at the end 
of Exodus 20. Uh, in verses like 22 to 26, the people are so afraid of God. Don't, don't talk to us. Moses, you talk to us. And then God gives them some simple instructions for an altar. All right. So, so remember how this happens. God presents the law. All right. He presents the law. He comes, Moses comes down with the tablets, and they've broken all of those laws. In the 40 days that Moses was up there, this wonderful God, who of his own doing rescued a people, defeated the most powerful army in the world, brought them to the foot of this mountain. It is rumbling. It's, it's the, there's banner, there's, there's a fences so they don't go up there. Moses comes down, and they've broken all 10 of them. Every single one of them has been broken. And Moses, in his anger, what does he do? He takes the tablets and he, he throws them down. <laughs> he takes the golden calf. You know what he does with the golden calf? He grinds it into a powder and he, he makes them drink it. I love that. I don't know if I could make you do that, but I just I kind of love it. It's like, oh, this is your God? Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> you idiots! <laughs> How could you think? Right? The law comes down. Uh, he breaks it, and then the God, God writes again, front and back of those tablets. It's the law. They receive it. But in 22 to 26, God says, here's how you're going to make an altar. Why does he do that? Well, because he knows uh, it wasn't, they didn't sin uh, with the golden calf because they didn't know the law, right? It wasn't, oh, now they know it. They're going to follow it. Right? I, I don't know how many of you as parents thought, once my kids know the rules, everything will be great. <laughs> right? <laughs> Idiots! <laughs> once they know the rules, they're Christians, we're good parents, everything will be smooth sailing. No. Once they know the rules, what do you have to do almost immediately? Come up with the punishments, don't you? Here's what happens. Here's the discipline that happens when you break this rule. Our God knows. He gives the law, and then he says, I want you to make an altar. And he's pretty specific about this altar. He basically says, I want you to make an altar that's really, really plain. I want you to just get some stones. I don't want you to use chisels on the stones. I just want you to make an altar because what's important is what's on that altar. Not how beautiful it is. Uh, God doesn't uh, wait for the prettiest altar uh, to come and take the sin sacrifice. But here's the law, and here's my grace. Here's the law. It is going to increase the trespass. The law is going to come, and you're going to find these are the things that our God hates. These are the things that I, I do even sometimes without thinking. This is how I think. This is how I act. This is what I love. I do these things. The law of God comes and it convicts our sin. It says it increases the trespass. We'll see that in the section on sanctification in Romans chapter 7. It says the law comes to me and it says don't do this. And as soon as I hear don't do this, I want to do this. Our house in Tupelo, we put a pool in it. And um, so a pool has a deep end and a shallow end. And as they're starting to put it in, the, the deep end is really close to the boy's upstairs window. And I'm like, uh, no, flip that joker around. <coughs> James, like, why? Because they're going to jump from their window in there and break their legs. <laughs> and Dad, you know, I care about their legs and also what it would cost me to get them fixed. Right? I, I, we can tell them no. Okay, let's see how that works. 
right? It's going to be one of their friends, right? The, the law, he says, it increases trespass, but also even conjures up in ourselves at times, right? Hey, son, don't watch that show. Don't listen to that music. What do we do? We go to our buddy's house and we listen to that music. We're like, yes. There's a song, Rage Against the Machine, but Luke said, whenever I, whenever I got in trouble, put on his headphones and he'd hide in his closet. Right? Dad threw away uh, the Rage Against the Machine CDs, right? That, that's the nature of the law and sin. So, um, so from the start, salvation was a rescue. From the start, salvation was by grace. There would have to be a substitute for God not to destroy his people. Faith in the promises of God then would lead his people to actions. These actions responding to faith in God in his grace, or what we would call obedience or good works. Um, it is why we can offer God's gospel to anyone who will believe. We, we, that we don't make them jump through all these hoops, do this, do this, do this, and after six months, you are declared a Christian. Um, so faith in God and in who he is, uh, it changes our behavior. Um, now, I harp on this because, and again, you, you've heard it, because there is, a, there is a terrible misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what Christian faith means in our culture, and, and it's spreading across Africa. And it basically is, faith in God means I believe in a certain outcome so strong. I have faith uh, that my wife is going to be healed. If my faith is strong enough, then I actually am forcing God to obey me. They won't say it that way, but that's what it is. If I believe something strong enough, if I conjure up, or maybe there's enough people that are going to believe the same thing. And I'll hear it. You know, we'll, I'll have people pray for this. This is what we're praying. This is what we're claiming. And then I'll pray, Lord, if you take their lives, may you be worshipped, may you be praised. And there'll be people that, why did you say that? Don't, don't, don't give that power. Christian faith means we trust in what God has told us about himself. We trust in what God has told us about himself and about ourselves. His promises are the ones he has given. We trust his promises as given. That's Christian faith. It is not something that is a good work in us. I have, I have conjured up enough faith. Now God owes me. That's not Christian faith. Christian faith is, here is what God has revealed about himself and about us, about his gospel, and we believe it, and we trust it. Um, so uh, the sermon in the sentence this morning is that the promises of God to his people are given, received, maintained, and experienced through faith in the grace of God. God. I've gotten a little ahead of myself, but you will get there. What is the promise? Verse 13, what is the promise? There's promise given to Abraham as part of the covenant, and it is that you will be heir of the world. Uh, that comes in Genesis 12. We've talked about that. And this is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12. Listen, listen to the verbiage. I'm going to read it. If you have your Bible and you mark up your Bible, just mark each time it says, I will, in your Bible. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will 
show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is the initiation of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at all that God says he will do. I'm going to give you a place. Think about that. What does that mean to us? If we're his heirs, if we're his offspring. What does Jesus say? I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you. God says to Abraham, you're going to leave your family, your country, all of your relatives. It's a big deal. They don't have cell phones. It, it you know, like you talk about people just even going in the early settlers, right? The people that le left from the East Coast and went out to California. By the time they get to California, it's a whole different group of people. Like people died, had babies, they had babies. You know, I mean, it was just, it, it, it's, it's tough. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I will make your name great. I'll even make you a blessing. And those who bless you, I will bless. Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what our God does. Our God takes an undeserving person and says, in you, I'm going to show forth my grace and my mercy. And in you, O oh Christian, I will bless the world. In Genesis 15, Abraham still hasn't got a son. Um, and uh, he's doubting God. He's 100 years old. God, you promised me all these great things. How's it going to happen? Genesis 15, he says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. I am your reward. It shall be very great. Abraham says, but God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Not even his son, one of his servants, who's going to be my heir. Abram said, behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. It's beautiful. You know, you, you take your doubts to the Lord. Right? That's what we do. The Father wants to hear it. It's in our head. He knows it. We verbalize it to the Lord. Father, I'm having trouble believing you in this area. Have you not promised this? And yet this happens. The Lord came to him and said, This man won't be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness all right so we've heard that quoted several times in my sermons already on on romans 4 it's the apostle saying our god hasn't changed abraham was saved by faith in the grace of god you are saved by grace by faith in god abraham believed and he counted to him as righteousness and he said to him i am the lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Basically, he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. <laughs> I believe, but God, how is it going to happen? And so what follows in Genesis 15 
is a covenant being cut. So it's a really interesting text. Um, David and I were talking about it on Friday, and he said it's R.C. Sproul's favorite text, Genesis 15, uh, 15, 17. So it's his favorite text. If he was stuck in a, a cell in solitary confinement, this is the verse he would want. Um, and so, of course, I spent an hour and a half listening to R.C. Sproul on Saturday when I should have been doing other stuff for my wife and um, the glorious message on Genesis 15, 17. Here's what happened in Genesis 15. Uh, God says to Abraham, okay, here's, here's what you're going to do. And it made sense to Abraham. He gives him a whole grocery list of animals and says, take this dove and cut it in half. Take this sheep and cut it in half. Cut this heifer in half. And so Abraham takes these animals and he splits them in half. And um, he waits till uh, twilight, till sunset. And then a smoking fire pot and a fiery torch make its way between. Now, I can't, you read that without understanding, like, what? <laughs> what is going on in, in the covenant? God is saying, Abraham, you know why you can trust me? Because I'm making a covenant with you. And Abraham, if I am unable to keep this covenant, then I will relegate myself to the fate of these animals. It is on me, Abraham. You can trust I will do it because I said I will do it. And he gives this beautiful visual representation. I am the Lord your God, and there will be nothing that will stop me from doing what I promised to do. Verse uh, 17 and 18, the sun had gone down, it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So the promise is to be a God to his himself to Abraham and to his seed. The second part of this promise is then, who does it include? Abraham and his offspring. We'll go through this quickly. It, it, the, the text tells us Abraham's offspring are not those who just adhere to the law. Abraham's offspring are not those who are born naturally. Remember the Pharisees in Matthew 3? Jesus says, don't presume to say we have Abraham as our father. Right? They were trusting in that. We, we were, we were, we're the direct seed of Abraham his promise applies to us because we are blood relatives. Jesus says, no, no, no. God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. The promise is to those who are righteous by faith. Verse 13, um, those who are righteous by faith. Uh, he'll pick this up again in Romans 11 when he says, and in this way all Israel will be saved. In verse 11, uh, chapter 11 of Romans, we'll get to, to that, but he explains here's how God's promise is fulfilled to Abraham in bringing in the Gentiles and the faithful Jews uh, so all Israel is saved. Um, the logical response then, um, verses 14 to 15, he responds to this argument that the promise should be to us because we were born Jewish. He says, if, if that promise given to Abraham because he obeyed the law, uh, then, then faith is empty. It's useless. He says it's null. It doesn't accomplish anything. Faith in that sense says, I'm going to really receive what's promised, uh, not because God promised it to me, not because he's gracious, but because I've obeyed. 
He says also, then the promise is void. It's not a promise. It was just a payment of what was earned. Uh, so the logical response is it, it can't be that way. God's grace doesn't come through our obedience, our following the law. It can't be. And, and two other reasons. First, Romans 3.20, no one has kept the law. Right? So Abraham didn't keep the law. You know what happens after 15? Right? You know what happens after just 15? He gets his maidservant, his wife's maidservant pregnant. Right? Oh, I believe, I believe, I have faith. It's counted me as righteousness. It must be that I have to do it this way. Um, and the physical offspring of Ab Abraham, they broke the law. But also, um, logically, the promise came before the law. Right? So the promise came to Abraham. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. Right? He had knowledge of who God was. He was told to believe and trust what God said to him. Right? He had, I mean, he had direction from God, but the law, as the Jews would say, it had not yet come. The other thing is the work of the law. He says, here's what the law does. The law increases our trespass. It brings wrath. So the promise can't be received by works. Logically, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but lastly, it doesn't make sense theologically either. Verse 16 and 17. We'll pick up on 17 uh, in the next sermon. But it's really his theological response. It must depend on grace. Um, look at verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. God doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. He makes a covenant, and when that covenant is broken, he provides the sacrifice. He will not even let the sin of his people keep him from fulfilling his covenant. Salvation guaranteed by an omnipotent grace. In your notes, I wrote John Stott's conclusion on this chapter. He says, faith's exclusive function is humbly to receive what grace offers. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It's hard for us to get our heads around it, and we will have to remind each other of that because we are just so prone to rest on what we've done. We're so prone, if we've been really a good Christian for a while, that we expect somehow we, we, we move above the other ranks and we should receive things. Uh, and then our Savior gives us this sacrament. You will always be mine because of my grace. You will always be included in my family because of my grace. And my promises to you will be received and relied upon by faith in my grace. This is how we come to the table. It's not the beauty of the altar, but the beauty and the glory of the sacrifice. Uh, the table that we partake this morning, it's not by taken by those who've earned this through the law. I've been a good Christian this week, therefore I can come to the table. This table is taken by faith in the work that Christ has done. Christ himself has kept the law. He, he was not found guilty of any trespass. 
Christ himself was torn asunder. His blood was spilled so God would keep his covenant. We are his blood-bought children, and we celebrate that at this table. He is all-sufficient. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your consistency. We see you deal with Abraham in a way. We see you deal with Moses and those who wander in the wilderness in the same way. We see Christ dealing with us in the same way and the apostles following that path. Salvation is all from you. It is by your grace that we have been saved. And it is through faith that we receive these promises. And even that faith, Father, comes to us by your gracious spirit. We can't even hold on to our faith and say, this is what I have brought to the table. Every good and perfect gift has come down from you. And so we ask, Father, as you set these elements aside, will you increase our faith? May we leave confident of your blessings upon us. May the acceptance of your grace fresh and anew drive us to obey your word drive us to live lives that outwardly show what inwardly we have received holy spirit grant to us the conviction of sin and our ways walk with us along the path remind us that we have been purchased Remind us that we are secure. Turn us away from unholy things. Turn us away from all the various forms of idolatry that want to destroy us and those around us. Not by making us afraid, Father, but making yourself so beautiful, so glorious, that we would not want to commit adultery with any other God. We would not hear the voice or believe or trust any other God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jim Belcher wrote a book on church planting, and I got to um, be a part of his church plant in Southern California. Uh, and he, he called, the, the book's title is, is Deep Church, and it was, it, was really, it was really a great book on church planting and just on the nature of a church. But his overarching illustration was a watering hole in Africa. And he, he said, you know, you can plant a church and put a fence around it and so nobody leaves. You know, be pretty strict. Uh, you know, police all of your people. Or you can plant a church where the rivers of grace just run deep. And what keeps the animals in Africa near the watering hole is there's no other water. They know if they wander too far away, they will die of thirst and starvation. And as I read it, I remember thinking that that really is what the church is to be. Uh, we go, we wander, we, we might even try a drink here or something there, and, and, it, and it leaves us still thirsty. We come to this table, and what do we bring? We bring with us our brokenness, our sinfulness, our failures, our breaking of God's law. We bring that to him, and we trust that God is keeping his covenant because Christ himself was severed and given. Therefore, my sins are forgiven and I receive sonship. I receive adoption and it is all of him. 
The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, took bread as I do, ministering his name, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, This is my body, it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, and he said to them, This cup, it is the new, the new covenant. Christ knew what he was doing. He didn't just say, we're going to try this because, you know, we're getting tired of the lambs and the unleavened bread. No, he's like, all of that was pointing to me. This new and complete covenant. We won't, we won't have sacrifices anymore. Right after Christ was resurrected, what happened at the temple? That the curtain dividing the commoners from the holy place was torn in half. And the Romans came through and, and destroyed it. People still argue about where it should be to this day. That's all a sovereign, almighty God saying, my dwelling is now with my people. You are now a kingdom of priests. You are most holy to the Lord. My blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. This table is for those who have abandoned their self-righteousness, who have abandoned their arrogance at keeping the law of God, who and we all have to try. The harder we try, the more grace means to us. I'm just going to tell you. The harder you try to follow the law of God, the more you fall back and say, I need your grace, I need your grace, I need your grace. You, you, you might do the right thing, but then all of a sudden it's like, I did the right thing, but I did it for this reason. Don't! It's not good enough. This table is for you. If you've yet to put your faith in Christ, you've yet to repent of your sins, and this table is not for you. If you are refusing to reconcile with brothers and sisters in Christ, then this table is not for you at this time. Go and reconcile. Make things right. It is a table of unity. We have one body. We have one cup when we share it. Brothers and sisters, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. 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 These are the gifts of God for the people of God. I'm going to ask Jake and Donna uh, to serve this morning. Kind of special for them that Abigail and Kennedy get to take their first communion from a couple that's been with them, well, since I've been here. Um, so, Jake and Donna, when you come and you're ready, come to the Lord's table.
they go. You want one of these? You got to figure it out. body given on your behalf. Take and eat. The parts of Revelation that speak of Jesus. They say, I, I saw a lamb looking as though it had been slain. Eternally, his blood saves us. Some of us, we, we, we look at grace and we say, that's how I got into God's kingdom. I repented, I believed, I was baptized, I got into God's kingdom. But once I'm in that kingdom, I really have to obey and keep up for him to still love me, for him to still keep me. Sometimes I think we look at it as like a, a college scholarship. I was great as a senior. I got a scholarship, uh, but then I partied and I lost my scholarship. I got a good academic scholarship, uh, but then I got an F in biology, and I've lost my scholarship. That's how the world operates. That's how we do sometimes with our own promises. But our promises rest on the blood of Christ. God doesn't look at Mark Kuyper's record as a church planner, as a pastor. God looks at his son and says, come and enjoy your master's happiness. Take and drink. Stand and sing together. <laughs> God of Abraham, the God of covenant, of faithful promises. Time and time again, you have proven, you do just what you say. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart burn when you speak a word, it will come to
great is your faithfulness to me. God, from age to age, though the earth may pass away, your word remains the same. Your history can prove there's nothing you can do. You're faithful and true. Though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. And let my heart learn you speak a word. It will come to familiar with him, but if you have theological questions, go on YouTube, put the theological question, and put R.C. Sproul, and you'll get a great answer. Um, he ends his sermon, which was 58 minutes long, on uh, Genesis 15. He ends it 
by just saying, verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. How can we trust you? How can we know your promises will be fulfilled? On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. We have partaken of a covenant renewal this morning. We've taken the body and the blood as reasonable signs that our faith in Christ is not ill-found. He has promised, and he will do it. And now let us go forth as sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, the depths. No, we're going to sing first. God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.